0: Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written over 35 cookbooks, including the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook. Uh, You need that one if you've got an air fryer. The Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, now at Costco. Or... And, I guess, Lobsters Scream When You Boil Them and a 100 Other Myths About Food and Cooking. It is a non-cookbook of 101 common food myths such as Lobsters Scream When You Boil Them. (laughs) Lobsters don't have vocal cords, they can't scream. So we are the authors of all those books, but this podcast is all about being picky.
1: Oh, I know all about that. I am probably your pickiest, high-maintenance, most—I <laughs> am not an easy person. Are we still talking you. about food? No, I'm talking living oh. with me in general. Oh, but yes, I we're going to talk about I'm pickiness with food because 26 years of marriage, and I'm there. Okay, go on. You know, but there—look, there are things that everybody doesn't like right there's i when people say oh i eat everything if you push hard enough and you poke long enough you'll find the one thing they don't really like and mark's looking at me like well what's the thing what's i don't that, really what's the like? thing i don't eat you don't like sesame seeds in your toast no see
0: no there's something I you don't. don't like okay i will admit that i do i like sesame oil and i like sesame Paste, but not and in I bread like tahini uh, in hummus and i like tahini with middle eastern food what i don't like is when sesame seeds get burned and they take on that very acrid strong taste but what we want to talk about is we want to talk about foods that we each hated and learned to like and i can tell you right off that one of the things that i hated with cilantro i did i had it for a long time i had a cilantro aversion i know that there are some people who claim this is a genetic aversion to cilantro it well, is a genetic thing it, it could be tastes th- like soap th- to people it could be i i'm not sure but you know what you can even learn to like soap so <laughs> so here's the thing you have to kind of you don't have to but if you want to to expand your palate, you have to ease into it. And I learned to like cilantro. I kind actually like it. I like it in Chinese stir fries. I love it when Bruce coats the top of his slippery Sichuan dumplings with lots of chopped cilantro. miss coriander, but cilantro all chopped up. I love all of that a great deal and think it's delicious. But you can't, if you want to learn how to like a food, jump in Feet first, you have to ease yourself into the pool. I, w- I would say that if you don't like cilantro, you cannot eat cilantro <laughs> pesto as your first thing out of the gate. Gonna, I love
1: cilantro, and I think cilantro pesto is disgusting. Uh, it's uh, too
0: much. Well, okay, maybe, but th- I'm telling you that I learned to like cilantro over time, and yes, I thought it tasted like soap, and apparently you can learn to like soap, because now I find it refreshingly delicious on top of slippery dumplings, in um, many Cicerone stir fries. I even have yes, liked it raw in salads. Mm. So I have changed dramatically in 30 years with cilantro.
1: Well, my food change was extraordinarily dramatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a house where there was very little fish eaten. And if my parents ate fish, it was mostly lobster or shrimp, and they went out for it, but I would never eat it. And, and they might get smoked salmon and smoked whitefish and all the appetizing you stuff. You
0: lived in New York City very close to the water. Did. I grew up in Dallas without much fish, but I grew up in Dallas a long way from any
1: water. But I wouldn't eat it even when they brought it in. And the thing was, I grew up my whole life not eating it, until it became an identity. My identity was, I don't eat anything that lived in water. When Mark first met me, I was 35 years old, and I always said, I don't eat anything that lived in water. It It was like a badge of honor, and it was my identity. So how did he start to eat fish?
0: I'll tell you. Um, I moved in with Bruce back in 96 in New York City, and just then a whole passel of very high-end sushi restaurants were coming into the East Village in New York City. And I love, 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 love sushi and sashimi. I love raw fish. So we would go down to these restaurants and Bruce would go with me and I would order my sushi plate and have my orgasm at the table as I ate my sushi plate and
1: he would sit there with his chicken cutlet. i had my steak teriyaki cooked on the hot rocks. I had a lovely food. (laughs) I love beef negamaki, the thin steak wrapped around the scallions and and the sweet sauce. Don't give me
0: these stink looks as I ate the fish but I couldn't help it and I was just so overwhelmed by it so eventually
1: he asked me why did you ask me i said okay i am ready to try one piece of tuna but <laughs> i don't i want it on your plate i don't want to put on my plate i don't want it on a plate near me i don't want it on my own plate right it had to come on your just order yourself an extra piece and i'm gonna eat and that really irritated you you didn't like that no it didn't irritate me all that bad i just thought it was kind of weird but it did it had to sit on my plate and then
0: he moved from tuna to a piece of maguro, a piece of tuna, and he would ask me to order that for him. And then it finally got to be where he would order a couple pieces on a small plate next to his chicken cutlet. And he would order it. And anyway, the long and the short is two years later, Bruce was back working at an advertising job. I met him for lunch at a Japanese restaurant, and he ordered the yellowtail collar and squid (laughs) and sea urchin. And I remember saying to him at that lunch, you know you're over the seafood thing. You're officially really? now over it. So if you're ordering yellow
1: grilled yellowtail collar. You're you're over it. So here's the thing, and this is actually a scientifically proven thing, and this is why it was easy for me to go slowly. Raw fish is much less fishy and stinky than cooked fish. Yes, and it is that way for a reason. The long protein chains of that are in raw meat of all kinds of raw meat. Our taste buds are not designed to taste them very well.
0: My colleagues can taste them really well, but ours are not.
1: So when you cook them, when you add heat to protein, it breaks some of those protein chains into smaller pieces, and those smaller molecules have a very strong flavor. That's why cooked fish taste fishier than raw fish. It's why a cooked hamburger tastes like a grilled lusciousness, while raw ground beef actually doesn't taste very much. Uh, Well, some of us disagree with that, but that's because we buy local raw meat and eat it raw, but
0: that's a whole different matter. So I I started out with I grew up in a house in which um, I should say that my mom had a rule when I was a kid, and that is you had to try everything twice. Uh, It was just this rule that my mom had, and I don't know that it would work for anyone else's children, but her rule was basically, you know, you eat it once, and of course you don't like it because it's new or it's weird or it's different or whatever, but, you know, you have to give it a second go, and Honestly, I can say that I am, with the exception of sesame seeds, and I also tend not to like super soft food. Um, I do like oatmeal, but when when certain things get really soft, like it get over marinated, you don't like meatloaf soft. No, Not enough crunch. I can say that I have learned to like meatloaf and that we have a dear friend who died a couple of years ago and she made a killer meatloaf. And oh, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Died killer. Well, anyway. She the died, meatloaf didn't kill her. No. She died a couple of years ago and she made a really good meatloaf. And I can say that I actually relished going to her house to eat meatloaf. And that's another thing. I got over it. I got over it. A, for the friendship, because I knew it was something that she loved to make and that she felt she was really good at making, and I think she really was good at making it. But I I knew that, and I also knew that, you know, how do I say this to you? Uh, Brit and I have this little thing that we say to each other all the time. Is this the last meal you're going to eat? If it is, then, okay, then you can be absolutely dead on set on eating exactly what you want. But if it's not the last meal you're going to eat, or probably not, like you would know, probably not the last meal you're going to eat, you know what? Sometimes it's it's best to let it go in the face of the friendship, and it's best to figure out how to like things. And I actually grew to the point where I asked I ask her to make meat love me.
1: Well, I could tell you that once I learned to eat fish and learned to like fish, my life opened up, my food career opened, my whole food world changed. I became a food writer after that. I became a cookbook author after that. How can I be in this business if I'm not eating one of the most major food groups in the whole planet? Right. It just it's, wasn't going to happen. And I, you know, I, I just
0: think that it's important to always to be trying to experience new things and to expand your palate. It's a good thing to expand your yeah, palate is. because it helps you expand in other ways in your life. It's not that eating I don't know what you don't like mayonnaise. It's not that suddenly okay you're going to you know make a valiant ever to light mayonnaise it's not that's not going to revolutionize your life but it's indicative of a changing attitude that a your tastes are not set in stone mm. Mm, important and b that you're open to trying to expand yourself this seems really important get to segment two let me just remind you that you should subscribe to this podcast rate it like it we would really appreciate that and we would also appreciate your checking out our brand new cookbook out this fall the Instant Air Fryer Bible, a air fryer book written entirely for the Vortex and Omni machines that are made by Instant Brands, the same people who make the Instant Pot. Check that out. It's already up at bookstores everywhere. You can already pre-order it.
1: That would be spectacular. And let me also just add that all the recipes in that Instant Air Fryer Bible work in any brand, any model air fryer you do happen to have. They
0: do. They will. They just specifically works for those machines but you know once you set it at 350 at 10 minutes is 10 minutes in most air fryers so on to segment two our one minute cooking tip what is it it is by a bench scraper. I didn't even know that what, what that was. Uh, if you don't know, I am the writer and Bruce is the chef. And I did not even know what that was, even as an established food writer, when I met Bruce. So what's a bench a scraper? A bench
1: scraper is something bakers use, bread bakers use all the time. They use it to cut dough apart, to move flour around. It looks almost like the blade end of a cleaver without a handle, no. but it's not sharp. No. And a lot of people use their knives to scrape whatever they've got on their counters and across their cutting board and move mm. those... V- Don't do that. Not only is it dangerous, mm-hmm. but you'll quickly dull your blade instead. It's in- dangerous because the knife can slip. Yeah. Invest in a cheap bench scraper. Use it to scoop up food scraps, transfer things from your cutting board to pots and pans, and it's great for quickly cleaning up a messy counter as well. Yeah,
0: it's great to be able to chop an onion, pick up the bench scraper, put it all on the bench scraper, and put it right into the pot off the cutting board because you can, it's just an easy transport vehicle instead of picking up the cutting board, especially if you follow the tip we gave you a while back to put a wet paper towel under your Mm. cutting board so it doesn't slide around. Okay, up next, segment three.
1: (music) What is it? Well, instead of an interview, we thought since we talked about all the things we didn't like to eat and how Mm. picky we were, Mm. we wanted to talk about some helpful tips tips to help you deal with your picky eaters.
0: Right. Because
1: right? there are so many picky eaters out there. So many. And you know, studies have actually found, and there's, you can go to um, the National Institute of Health and look this up, and you can find articles. 50% of parents... Consider their preschool-aged children to be picky eaters. Yep. 50%, that's yep. huge. It is. And I'm going
0: to tell you something, and you're not going to want to hear it. And it is uh, studies that I followed up on in our book, Real Food Has Curves, which is a step-by-step plan to get the processed food out of your life. And um, I did a lot of research on these studies, and it is pretty well solidly based research. That, and you're not going to want to hear this. <laughs> I'm not going to want to hear this. Nobody with a kid is ever going to want to hear what I'm about to tell you but that many of your child's likes and dislikes are the result of you and you don't want to hear that and it's not actually anything you did and it's not actually anything you genetically did it's something you unconsciously did here's the here's what the studies all say that babies learn how to read particularly their mother's faces. A baby's um, basic, what do I want to say, their basic uh, uh, mode of safety, how they know they're safe, is the expression on their mom's face. And if the expression on your face is good, it doesn't 100% mean your baby will be happy, but it does mean that you're not scaring your baby. If the expression on your face is worried or downcast, it often reflects into the baby because the baby is nonverbal. The baby is reading an coding your signs for to show its own safety. So here's the deal when you approach the baby again with a spoonful of strained Brussels sprouts, gross, just <laughs> gross, you might have a slightly furrowed brow or you might have a slight look on your face like oh my god what the hell is this? Which you should have actually but that cue is picked up by the baby and the baby sees that mom looks dissatisfied in the face of this thing that's coming toward my mouth. And this leads further to picky eating. I know you're not going to want to hear this, but the, the
1: research is pretty solid that you need to be happy when you feed your child okay but there are also researchers show that as they get older you can be a food role model for your kids well i wouldn't even say that
0: food role model starts when you're a baby and you're doing that stuff it all ties in together
1: yeah i mean there are more articles at the uh, nih which show that young children are more likely to accept new foods when others around them are eating it so even as mark said when I'm not suggesting you need to eat those strained Brussels sprouts with no. your kid, but it, gross. it actually couldn't hurt. I well, mean, if you took a little spoonful of it with them. Gross. But no. if you try to increase the the variety of foods you eat around your kids, we yep. talked about it, expanding your palate. Over time, the kids will see that and they will start to just model you. That's what role modeling is all about. And
0: we're talking here even with pre-verbal children. Yep. Um, if you're attitude toward food is more positive, their attitude toward food is largely more positive. Now, it's not 100% corollary, and we're not saying there aren't genetic components, and we're not saying that everything is your fault. We're (laughs) saying instead that you ought to model decent food choices for your children. And it starts really with small tastes.
1: Yes, never give your kid huge piles of new food. Oh, no. Ever, like, oh, ever, no, ever.
0: No no, 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 like I said, don't eat cilantro pesto if you don't like cilantro. <laughs> don't if, start there. If
1: you want to start with something new, you're even more likely to get them to eat it if they see it's a tiny bit. If they see a giant pile of something coming at them, they're very likely going to go, oh no, I'm not going to do this. So you start small and you do it once and then you try it again some other time. But Do not approach your child with an entire plate of chopped liver and expect that they're going to eat chopped liver.
0: And remember, and you know this better than I do, remember that all studies show that positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. is bigger than negative reinforcement. That if you applaud your children for trying something new, that is better than shaming them for eating something Mm -hmm. that they don't like. And try not to, and this is pretty clear in the research too, try not to reward good eating with bad eating in other words like oh, eat your carrots and then you can get ice cream it's, it, it's you know if you give your kid a, a sugary
1: a, soda because they ate broccoli yeah. it's teaching them that sugary soda is okay so instead it's better in fact it, yeah so instead give them a new toy give them an extra 10 minutes of screen time give them something that you know they want that's not even food related to help reward them for eating something new. That's right.
0: And uh, the final bit of the research here uh, that we should probably say um, is that that it's really important that you keep exposing your children to new foods. I mean, when I was a kid, I have to say this is one of the things my parents did really well, is that even though we lived in Dallas, which was in the 60s and 70s, a bit of a food desert, to say the least, my parents were always going to Chinese restaurants, to Japanese restaurants, to Indian restaurants. We went to all kinds of new and strange <laughs> to me strange as a five-year-old strange restaurants because we were trying new things and it wasn't scary to walk into I don't know some Sicilian restaurant that my parents wanted to try listen believe me Sicilian was exotic in Dallas (laughs) in the 1960s it wasn't scary to walk
1: in there because my parents were excited to walk in there and try something and let me also say I know you said your mom made you have try things twice, but research shows that it can take up to 15 times of presenting a kid with something new before they will actually try it so don't throw in the towel don't give up too quickly and know that by the 15th time you will probably get them to try it yeah
0: let me let me offer one last bit here before we go out to our fourth segment and that is basically my experience as a little kid I was the only grandchild in a German immigrant family and my I was for a long time I do have a brother but he's 11 years younger than I am so for a long time I was the only grandchild and I was this prized thing so my German immigrant grandparents fed me liver and gizzards and brains mm-hmm. and tongue because those things That's why were, you're so smart today <laughs> those things were reserved even brains those things <laughs> were reserved the favored grandchild, now I realize we're talking Central German food culture, Central Germany food culture. But they, they, they when they were presented to me, liver and brains. Yes, indeed, brains and all kinds of innards, they, a- they ate the chicken legs and they ate the chicken breast because that was less, um, I know, what am I want to say, less special. When it was presented to me, the heart and the liver and the gizzards, it was because I was so treasured. And I grew up not thinking there was anything weird about eating that. In fact, I thought it made me special. I realize that this is insane, but it does say something about teaching your children that the food that they eat
1: is something specially served for them. It is, and I know that's hard, especially if you don't like certain things. And you <laughs> couldn't imagine eating liver brains. or tongue or brains, or you couldn't imagine yourself eating cilantro or duck or some mm, weird mm, fruit. Mm. I know it's tri- hard to make your... Tripe. Tri- There's tri- a it, big one. It's hard to make your tri- Kids think they're special by having it but you got to do it. If you want your kids to eat it, look, research shows that picky eaters tend more often than not to have picky eating parents.
0: And you don't have to listen, you don't have to serve your children tripe and brains. In fact, you <laughs> probably shouldn't serve brains anymore at all. And tripe is can. all another matter entirely. But maybe we're just talking apples. And mm-hmm. maybe we're just talking plums. And maybe we're just talking grapes. And maybe we're just talking, um, I don't know, broccoli. Maybe that is part of being special. Uh, I think that, that that attitude that my grandmother and grandfather had at that you know, this was reserved for me. My gosh, the chicken hearts for me, and the chicken livers for
1: me, and the coxcomb for me. I, well, think, I got the gribness. I got the fried oh, chicken skin. Well, I would have. that would have been. My all grandmother over saved all the gribness for me.
0: I think it. I think it showed me that I was special. And so again. Um I, I I thought I was special. I've told the story a million times, but I'll say it again. When I was in third grade, my mother asked me what I wanted her to make for my third grade birthday party with all my friends, and I told her I wanted her to make tongue and my mother said I am not making tongue for third grades because I have this ghoul of a child who likes tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not somehow serving tongue to a bunch of random third graders, but I didn't think there was anything about it. I thought tongue was like this really, wow, big, big, important thing that
1: you got when you were special. Well, my family ate tongue. <laughs> I wouldn't touch it. It was disgusting. Of course, because it Jewish it hasn't. Well, what bothered me was me. it was a tongue. It was a whole tongue. And mm-hmm. then every time my grandmother would take the electric carving knife mm-hmm. to it, I would just shudder that went through me.
0: Right. Me, now I, I love it. I was being told how important I was, my grandmother. My mother made me a tongue and I wanted my mother to make it for my friends too and well she didn't. See so there you go. You can't serve everything (laughs) to third graders. Okay segment for what's making us happy in food this week you go first okay well one of the things that's made me happy in food this week is as we said we have been on a trip to asheville and in asheville i was actually ever able to find spiced peaches Mm. uh, let me tell you you cannot find spiced peaches up in new england people don't know what you're talking about but i grew up eating spice peaches and they're sweet and they're very aromatic with cinnamon and nutmeg and other spices and uh, they're packed in the uh, kind of sweet syrup that's got all these aromatics in it and i grew up eating it with mm, gosh yes bacon and ham and all pork products and i don't know spice peaches just remind me of my childhood and so we stepped at the farmer's market in asheville and a woman was selling spice peaches and i was like I am home. I have found the place to be.
1: Well, we were close. Mine isn't spiced peaches, but it's something we got at that same farmer's market, and that's sourwood honey, which Mm. is something you get in the south, Mm. and it's a very light colored honey. It's it's so almost clear. It's crazy. And we bought it with the honeycomb in it. And Mm -hmm. sourwood honey is floral, and despite its being very light colored, it has a lot of flavor, but it's a delicate flavor. It's very delicate. It's so perfumey and Oh, days. my God. I was spreading it on salty crackers the other day. And, oh, God, just crackers I, and honey. Yum. I had it
0: on buttered toast this morning for my breakfast before. With, with the comb, with the with the wax. I did have a little wax in a comb before I taught Edith Wharton. Mm. I had some... Honey on buttered toast, and it was absolutely delicious. Okay, that's our podcast this week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting us be your companions on this podcast. We really appreciate that you're on this journey with us. And the easiest way to connect with us is to find us on social media. You can find a cook a group on Facebook, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. But beyond that, you can
1: even find just us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we will see you next time on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.